Great. Good morning, ladies, and uh, thank you, and welcome. And do you have any questions for me this morning before we begin? Yes, we do. Yes, Cindy. Right, so why would John use present tense? Why would he describe Jesus as coming instead of saying he has come? And I will answer that question uh, in, the, in the lecture. And question 36 I hear, yes. which says? Which says, what doctrine do you suggest you throw to John? The word doctrine, we could see all sorts of themes through this. Right. What's the doctrine you were looking for? Yeah, I wasn't really looking for doctrine. There, there are some theologians that say there's zero doctrine in there. But there is a sense of commending uh, Gaius for his faithfulness to the truth and that understanding of truth in, in first and second John uh, probably carries over the understanding as Jesus is the truth and that understanding of this body of belief that this understanding of what has been heard from the beginning also being the truth. Uh, there's at least that much but it is it's really even hard to figure out um, and I'll talk about this a little bit about what the dispute between him between John and Diotrephes was about because, um, you know, there's no theology in there. So was it just purely a power struggle or was he siding with secessionists? And we'll talk about that a little bit. We've got a lot of verses. We've got like, what, 27 verses to go through. That's a lot of verses for, for me. So uh, hopefully we'll touch on that too. Any other questions? I know there was a question about how do we apply this sense of, of what Third John, or excuse me, what Second John has to say about not offering hospitality how is that applicable in our world? And, and I'll touch on that as well. Hopefully I'll answer that satisfactorily for you. Uh, any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you uh, so much for your word, for your truth uh, that never returns void. Father, even as I was giving a little devotional yesterday on parts of, of 1 John, I was just reminded how beautiful, how deep, uh, and how... Um, just compelling your truth is. So thank you for the privilege of teaching this. Thank you for the privilege of learning it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to give you, first we're going to start with just a little bit of background on 2nd and 3rd John. I know we touched on it at the beginning of the uh, semester, but that's been a long time ago now. So uh, just really quickly, who wrote 2nd and 3rd John? He does actually identify himself, although as one theologian says, not as uh, not as uh, specifically as we Westerners would like, he identifies himself as the elder. Um, that does not tell us specifically who he is. It's not a name. It's not like with Paul where he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, but traditionally, that is believed to be John, the apostle John. And I see no reason uh, to not accept that or to doubt that in part because, as we mentioned earlier in this, the first week of the semester in the introduction, it is obvious, and it's probably obvious to you now, that the author of 1 John wrote 2 John. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? And the author of 2 John wrote 3 John. It's also obvious that the author of 1 John wrote the Gospel of John. And so it would seem to me that, you know, just sort of uh, if we used geometric proofs, <laughs> we are ge geometry proofs, uh, that we end up with John for all of these books. So I see no reason 
to doubt that. And there is strong internal evidence within the books themselves, within the letters themselves, and external evidence, early church evidence, that John is the author of all three of these letters. When it was written would have been in the late first century, just as first John was, obviously after first John, although there are few theologians who would contend that, but it, that doesn't, reordering first, second, and third John doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's, it's pretty obviously after first John. We'll get to the where in the minute. Where were they written uh, in a minute? The setting is the same setting as we saw in first John. The secessionists are still preaching heresy, and that is particularly true, particularly obvious in 2 John. It is harder to tell in 3 John because, as we just said, there's very little theology in 3 John. So if there's no theology, how do you know uh, what the dispute was about? Was that part of the secessionists or not? But th since the setting is the same, it would seem that uh, that, that is still the case. Um, and, and as in 1 John, the heresy that was being preached had to do with Christology. Uh, who is Jesus? And particular with two things. The incarnation, that God came to earth as a man who was fully human and fully divi divine. Fully human and fully God. So that's the first part of the heresy. They were denying that. The second thing about Jesus was his atoning death on the cross. And the secessionists were denying both of those things, as you'll see in 2 John. Uh, so John, 2 John was written uh, to a particular church near Ephesus. And it is an exhortation and a reminder of the things written in 1 John. 3 John was written to a particular church member of a particular church, and his name was Gaius. And we'll get to uh, go through more specific background on that when we get to 3 John. Now, as, as we walk through these letters, we kind of see that things have gone from bad to worse in John's churches. In 1 John, some members have left to preach heresy, but the door seemed to not be completely closed yet. In 2 John, John tells us there are many who are preaching heresy, and the split seems complete and permanent as his admonition that they not offer hospitality to these people would indicate. Uh, and it, that's how bad that it's gotten. And we'll talk about what that means when he says don't offer them hospitality in a little bit. But at very least, things are getting worse for John and his churches around Ephesus. Third John depicts an even deeper and per, more personal crisis. There is one guy, Diotrephes, who is openly defying John. And it appears that his entire church, Diotrephes' entire church, is defecting from the community of believers that is led by John. Uh, obviously, at least Diotrephes and, and many of his church members were unaffected and unmoved by 1 John, by the first letter that he sent to all the surrounding um, churches. And probably, and actually a second letter, we'll find out in 3 John, was also sent and they were unmoved by that. Now, 
In your notes, there is a Roman numeral 2 next, and it says 1 John. Uh, your teacher is wrong there, <laughs> and uh, so it, that should say 2 John, uh, obviously. We've already studied 1 John. We don't need to go through that again. And in 2 John, he begins by talking about this commitment to love. First, though, let me tell you that 2 John has two purposes. The two purposes of 2 John are first to strengthen the member's commitment to the truth. Again, he's dealing with a heresy and he wants them to know that which is true. Secondly, his purpose is to warn them about the severity of the situation in the church concerning the secessionists, with regard to the secessionists, in order that the church might protect itself, the church members might protect themselves from that heresy. Now let's begin with the first six verses of 1 John. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing to you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So this is a commitment to love or a command to love that we've seen before in uh, 1 John, goes on into 2 John. He starts with a typical uh, greeting for ancient letters. Unlike 1 John, if you remember, 1 John starts this way, that which we've heard from the beginning. It's like, well, okay, we're right into it. No, hello, my name is John. Nothing like that. He gets right into it. It reads more like a sermon, doesn't it? And it might have been uh, some sort of sermon or treatise. This is more like a letter where he says, the elder. Uh, he identifies himself. He identifies his recipients. So there's, it's more of a to, a from, to, and then greetings that ancient letters had. Now, in this case, the greetings are grace, mercy, and peace, uh, and not greetings, but um, that, that was typical of ancient letters. And it's written to the chosen lady and her children. That is just a metaphorical way of referring to a particular church and its members. A house church, remember that, a house church meeting in a home and its members. He refers to his own church much the same way at the end of the letter. That's part of how we know that he isn't, he isn't talking to a particular woman and her actual children. But the woman is the church, and the children are the members of that church. We don't know which church it was now. Obviously, John did, and his readers did, but we don't. Um, so then he says to them, whom I love in the truth. What does that mean, to love someone in the truth? Well, he is expressing again, as we saw in 1 John, deep love for these members. And he could be saying, whom I truly love. He could mean truly. Uh, to, to this lady and her children, whom I truly love. 
but, but John mean, seems to mean more than just that. He does mean at least that, but he seems to mean more than that. They are in the truth. Just as John is in the truth, he loves them as they continue to be faithful to the truth. That seems more likely to me. That second uh, meaning seems more likely to me because he's going to go on to say, not only do I love you, but all who are in the truth love you. So John's point is that those are who, are, who are in the truth, those who are in Christ, love each other. Have we heard that before from John? Absolutely, absolutely. We've heard it over and over in uh, 1 John. Why? Because the truth lives in them and will be with them forever. Who's that? Who's the truth? That's Jesus. Why do we love you? Because we are all in Jesus, because Jesus is the truth, and he is with us and in us and will be forever. He gives us the power and the strength to love one another, even when we're unlovable. I don't know about you, but that's me a lot of the time. And then he describes them as those, he says, it has been me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. I love that word picture of walking, which means to live a life, a lifestyle that is in accordance with the truth of the gospel. That sort of pattern of living. Remember when he's talked about that as believers, we no longer live in sin or we no longer sin. We no longer live a pattern. We no longer walk in sin as a pattern of, of life, but we walk in the truth. That is our pattern. John is celebrating their continued faithfulness and obedience to the truth. But what about this deal some? <laughs> it gives me great joy to find that some of your children are walking in the truth. He may be kind of giving them a backhanded compliment, like, well, at least some of you are walking in the truth. You know, the others I'm not so sure about. And, and that could be what he's saying here, uh, kind of a cautious exhortation. But there's actually no evidence of that in the rest of the letter, is there? There's no place where he, you know, comes down on them um, for anything. I think he's probably expressing joy over those whose names he has heard, the reports that have come back to him that say, as he found with Gaius, hey, this one's walking in the truth. This one's walking in the truth. And, and so he's rejoicing over those particular people that he's heard about. He's not assuming one way or the other about the others. But let me tell you, I've heard, I've, I've heard about Jane and how she's walking in the truth, and I, I rejoice over that. I've heard about Wilma and how she's walking in the truth, and I rejoice over that. I think that's more John's heart in, in this letter. And again, we have the command to love. Again, as we've seen uh, over and over in 1 John, from the beginning, this is the command you have heard from the beginning. Again, we hear that term from the beginning, which means different things in different places. Here it means what they heard from the time they were first converted. This is the message you've received from the day you came to know Jesus. It hasn't changed. It's still the same. Love one another. Again, we hear that. And then he tells us to love is to obey Christ. And to obey Christ is to love. If we are obeying Christ, we will love. If we love, we are obeying Christ. They are both tied together because Christ commanded us to love. I've referenced the Gospel of John the 13th chapter, a number of times, where Jesus, as he's walking the night before he was, was killed, 
is, is walking along with his disciples and he says, a, a, command, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. It's from the beginning. And if you love me, you will obey me. And that is what John is reminding them of here, what was in John 13. His purpose then in writing these things is to help them combat the influence of the secessionists. And this will become obvious in verse 7. When we truly love one, love one another, we are less likely to slip into sin or to experience discord within the church. And this is a church that is experiencing discord. And one antidote to that is love one another, just as Jesus told us to love one another. And love is needed because many deceivers have come. I say this, I tell you to love one another because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So now he says there are many deceivers that are leading the church astray. That word could be translated liars, even stronger. There are many liars that have gone out uh, into the world. And they are leading people astray. That's why John is so strongly wording this. That's why he's so passionate about it. And he calls them the Antichrist. The anti this is the first time we've seen that, isn't it? This one, one indication that things are getting worse. He calls them Antichrists. As you've heard, the Antichrist is coming and these are like them. Now he says the Antichrist. He doesn't mean they're the Antichrist in the sense of the end-time figure who will deceive the nations. He does mean that by rebelling against the truth, uh, they show themselves to be aligned with the Antichrist, that they are doing the same work as the Antichrist. They are leading people astray just as the Antichrist will. And then in verse 7, he used this present tense for Jesus. Why? Why does he say that Jesus, they, they do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh instead of saying that Jesus did come in the flesh? I think that this, this idea of Jesus being the truth and being present with us is very important to John. And, and I believe that he is, is trying to press the truth of the ongoing reality of Jesus being present with us through the Holy Spirit now. Jesus died, but he rose again. And he ascended, but then he sent his spirit to be with us. He sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so in a very real sense, he is with us. Um, and, and that is what John is emphasizing here. But what are these deceivers denying? Two things. They are denying the in incarnation. They are denying that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus is fully human 
as well as fully God. They are denying that. And he says then, John says, don't run ahead of this truth. Stay with this truth. Don't run ahead of it. Running ahead, Dr. Burge says, is not progress in the faith, but progress beyond it. Uh, he's, John is saying, stay true to the truth you were given from the beginning. Continue in what we've known to be true about Jesus. That he is, that the incarnation is, G, is God come down in the form of Jesus, fully God, fully man. And then in verses 10 and 11, he gives us this hard word on hospitality. If anyone comes to you, uh, don't offer them hospitality. And it is a hard word, and, and John has been taken to task about it by a number of theologians, even some saying that he was wrong. And, and part of that is because practicing hospitality is generally commanded of us in the New Testament, something we're supposed to do, something we are, in fact, commanded to do. So the first point I want to make to you about this is that this is an emergency situation. This is something that calls for drastic measures. And John's calling on drastic measures. This isn't an everyday situation. This is a, this is a church in crisis. The example I used with Lindsay a little bit ago is I'm not going to take out the paddles right now, go down to, to uh, Linda right here and yell, clear, and hit the buttons. I'm just not going to do that. But if there was an emergency, I'd probably let Mary Jo or Janice do it because they're nurses. But, uh, but would you do that, ladies, for her? Absolutely, for anyone. Absolutely. Well, yeah, right, exactly. If, if the emergency called for it, if the emergency, we're going to assume, we're going to assume there's an emergency on our hands, there's no pulse. Then would you do it? It would be necessary, wouldn't it? And this is an emergency theological situation. This is an emergency spiritual situation in these churches. But even more than that, I want you to understand what I believe John is saying. Because here's the deal. John is likely not referring to letting the secessionists spend the night in their homes. Uh, it, it might be included in that, but that's not his main point. Because when he says, if anyone comes to you, you there is plural. So he's saying, if anyone comes to the church, if anyone comes to the church, so they are coming to the church and likely they are seeking to preach in that church. Likely they are seeking to fill the pulpit of that church. John is saying, don't give these liars, these deceivers, a hearing in your church. If you knowingly allow a heretic to preach from your pulpit, you are aiding and abetting heresy. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? And in fact, that would be true anywhere, anytime, for any church. And it happens in churches today where they knowingly and, abet, uh, and, and willingly allow people preaching something other than the gospel from what is supposed to be a Christian church. And John is primarily saying that. And then in verses 12 and 13, he gives his final greeting. Oh, here we go. I don't know when I was intending to read this, but... Oh, here we go. Was that, was that after it? It's out of order. Okay, I did that. Uh, here's the, the 2 John 12 and 13. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. 
the children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. My church and my church members send you their greetings. So he has a desire to visit these people. He's hoping, he's a pretty old guy, you know, and, and so he's cautious about it. It's kind of like when my mother-in-law who's 91 makes plans, you know. If I feel up to it, I'll be going to that wedding on Saturday. And she did feel up to it, and I was grateful for that. But sometimes you just need to see someone to know they're okay. Isn't that right? We have it easy now with FaceTime and Skype and all these things where you can be on the other side of the world and see someone that you love. But, but I get this because on Thursday we leave for Michigan to go see Katie for the first time. And I just need to look her in the eye to know she's okay. She sounds okay when I talk to her on the phone. She seems okay when we text and when we, and, and when we send emails. But it won't be till I look her in the eye and say, sweetie, are you doing okay? That I'll really know for sure. And I think that's what John's saying. I need to look you in the eye and know for sure that you're okay. And so, the, so his church then sends back their greetings. Now, for third John, I just want to give you a a timeline first, because we'll go over a couple of points with 3 John, but if we get these sort of pieces in place of this puzzle, most of what's in 3 John falls, falls into place. So we're going to read the whole thing, the whole 14 verses of 3 John we're going to read uh, at one, in one shot. He says, the elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the name, the sake of the name, the sake of Jesus. So, so there's a little theology for you right there. For the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refused to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll t we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. So this beautiful little letter of encouragement to this man named Gaius that we have no idea who he is. There are other Gaiuses in the New Testament, but there's no way to know if that is this Gaius. And what I want you to picture here then is a house church somewhere near Ephesus. And sometime after sending 1 John, John writes a second letter. Uh, and it's probably not 2 John, uh, because wh whatever church that he wrote 2 John to, he had a good relationship with. 
this church that he's discussing here, which was probably not Gaius's church, but Diotrephes' church, he obviously did not have a good relationship with Diotrephes or his church. And so when John sent that letter to that house church led by Diotrephes, um, it was rejected, possibly even destroyed, uh, but it no longer exists. It has not survived. We, we don't know what that letter is. So when that happened, when John got word from the people that took that letter, hey, Diotrephes kicked us out, he wouldn't have anything to do with it, he ripped up your letter, he's not, you know. Uh, when John got word of that, he sent emissaries to the church. He was trying to reconcile with this church and its leader, Diotrephes. Diotrephes refused to acknowledge them or offer them hospitality. He turned them away. In fact, he did more than that. He even began to publicly malign and slander John and throw people out of the church if they helped the emissaries or if they supported John. He kicked people out of his church for siding with John, keeping only those who agreed with him. That's pretty unhealthy, isn't it? Uh, now, Gaius, on the other hand, is a leader of a different church. At least most people believe that, and, that, and I think that's what makes the most sense. Gaius was courageous enough to help these emissaries. When, when Diotrephes would have nothing to do with them, Gaius took them in. Gaius took care of them. He showed them hospitality. He gave them food and lodging. He gave them monetary support. That's, when, that's code language in there. Send them on their way in a man, manner fitting. That's what that means. That was a technical term for that give them monetary support. And he had done all that, and John is asking them, him to, please, Gaius, continue to do this when I send people to you. The emissaries reported all of this back to John, both about Diotrephes and about Gaius. And, and so then John then wrote this letter of 3 John to Gaius in anticipation of a personal visit in which he plans to deal with Diotrephes. So who was this Diotrephes guy? Well, he was a leader in a house church who was at odds with John. It's possible that it was a theological disagreement, the same sort of heresy having to deal with the secessionists, but we don't see that in the letter, do we? What we see is that Diotrephes, who loves to be first, Diotrephes just wanted to maintain power over that church. He was on a power trip. He loved, that's what loving to be first, that's what that means. Uh, he wanted to be in control. He wanted to be in charge. And that's why he rejected John's authority. Because if he accepted John's authority, there would be a higher authority over his church than himself. And he couldn't have that. He loved to be first. And so he rejected John's authority over the church. Now, because of the similar settings of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, it is possible that he also sided with the secessionists theologically. Uh, it's, it's probably more than possible, but there really isn't enough evidence within the letter itself to know that for sure. But the settings are so similar that that probably had something to do with it. Here's the picture I get of Diotrephes in, in this church. And it's the picture I have of a, actually a a man that my parents knew quite well that my father went to West Point with. And I don't think I really want to name him. <clears throat> He's no longer living, which helps. Um, 
but he was the Secretary of State of the United States for a while. And um, when, he, when he got there, he was a colonel, and when he left, he'd completely skipped three stars, and he was a four star, and he ended up being very important uh, in, in the military, and then uh, also became Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. And those of you who are old enough to remember, which isn't everyone in the room, remember that Ronald, there's an assassination attempt against Ronald Reagan, and, and Vice President uh, George Bush was gone. And so this man stood before reporters, and he said, constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, you have the vice president, and then the secretary of state. I'm in charge here. I'm in control. Actually, constitutionally, that's not what you have. You have the president, the vice president, you have the speaker of the house, and then you have this, the Senate, senator pro tem of the Senate, and then you have the secretary of state. None of that mattered to this man. You know why? because he loved to be first. He believed he was in charge no matter who else was in the room. He was in control. And I think basically what Diotrephes was saying was, biblically, gentlemen, you have God, you have Jesus, and then you have me. I'm in control here. <laughs> that was Diotrephes. That was Diotrephes. Uh, and so uh, my father would not be happy with me for telling that story, but my mother would be giggling the entire time. <laughs> Uh, she had to have that man serve him in her home and, and be gracious to him, and it was hard for her, so. But she did it. Uh, and that's Diotrephes. Now, the purposes of this letter, this little letter of 3 John, uh, were to commend Gaius and hopefully to encourage him to continue to be a faithful ally for John. He's shoring up Gaius' support, not just for the gospel, primarily for the gospel, but also for John. John's, John's losing churches. John's losing people. And he wants to, to keep people faithful to the gospel, but also faithful to himself. Secondly, John here is trying to warn Gaius about Diotrephes and to let Gaius know John's plans for dealing with him. I'm hoping to come. And when I come, I will deal with him. And then thirdly, he writes to commend a man named Demetrius from John's church to Gaius, to say, Demetrius, he's a good guy. And, and John is sending Demetrius to Gaius, and so he's saying, treat him as well as you did the last people I sent. Likely, by the way, Demetrius was the carrier of the third John, that Demetrius took third John to Gaius. Now, just a few points from within the body of this um, this letter. Again, he says to Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And again, he means the same thing as he did in 2 John. Not so much whom I truly love, although that's true, but that both are in the truth, both are in Christ, and as such, they love one another. Because you are in Christ, I love you. Whoever you are, we are both in Christ, therefore we love each other. And then he says, I pray that it will go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. The proof that, that it was well with Gaius' soul is, first of all, that he remains faithful and continues to walk in the truth. And John commends him for this, this faithfulness and walking in the truth. For all of us, ladies, right thinking leads to right living. When, when we are aligned well with the gospel, we live according to the gospel. Theologians would call this orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right doctrine leads to right living. 
That's the way it's intended to be. And then secondly, the second proof that it is well with Gaius' soul is, is that Gaius is faithful to the truth. And being faithful to the truth means a steadfast commitment to the gospel. The truth is that which we have heard from the beginning, and Gaius is faithful to that. He is committed to that. It is also a rejection of that which opposes or runs ahead of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And Gaius has rejected that, and so it is well with his soul. And then he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. i got to tell you, I get that. I so totally get that. Because I had no greater grief than when my son was not walking in the truth. And there really is no greater joy than to hear that ones that you love, that you've been praying for, that you've been agonizing over, are walking in the truth. And so John just... just affirms that, that, that as, as a leader, as a parent, as, uh, as a follower of Christ, it is a joy to know that those we love are walking in the truth. And he says that Demetrius is commended. Uh, he commends Demetrius, and, and he says he's commended even by the truth itself. What does he mean by, what does it mean to have the truth commend Demetrius? Well, in 1 John, or in, in John's letters, in his epistles, um, the truth is Jesus. But in what sense would Jesus be commending Demetrius? That doesn't seem to make much sense, unless Jesus commended Demetrius while he was on earth, and Gaius knows that, but that doesn't seem likely. So we have a second choice here, because in John, the truth also refers to the truth of the gospel. So what John may be saying here is even his commitment to the truth speaks well of Demetrius. And then he, he calls them friends, and he says the friends here send their greetings. And that's an unusual word for friends. It is philoi, and it was used by Jesus to emphasize sacrificial love. You have all heard this verse. Greater love has no man than this then he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus uses that unusual word in, in that verse. And so John, at the end of this letter, is again emphasizing the importance of believers loving one another in the way that Jesus loved, with a sacrificial love. Well, to finish up today, I'm going to steal a little bit of Jude's thunder. We're going to study Jude next week and the week after, uh, and Jude talks a lot about the truth, but I'm going to steal a little bit of it here, kind of give you a taste of it, because I believe it is tremendously important for the church and for the members of the church to cling to the truth of Jesus Christ, to not run beyond it, to not jettison those truth, truths. Sometimes I think we idealize the early church. I think we think, you know, they had the apostles to teach them. I mean, what could be better than that? If I had John writing me letters, I wouldn't rebel against his authority, man. Why would I rebel against John? John, John's authority. The John. Uh, and yet here we have people not only openly rejecting the authority of the Apostle John, of the one who stood at the foot of the cross, of the one who was one of the three closest to Jesus when he was on earth, Peter, James, and John, the John that wrote the Gospel of John, Diotrephes is openly rejecting his authority over 
the church. How could he have done that? It boggles the mind. Aren't you glad that John is the last living apostle clung to the truth and refused to budge one inch on it. John is call, was called by, John and his brother James were called by Jesus, the sons of thunder. And the picture that gives, gives of these robust, robust, rowdy, kind of what I called Josh when he was little, destructo boy kinds of men. And when you read John in his letters, you kind of think, Oh, no, he's nice. He's a little soft apostle. He was a love, love, love kind of apostle. Son of thunder. You kind of hear some son of thunder in 2nd and 3rd John, don't you? Don't even let him in. Kick him out. Don't allow. He's, he is holding as a son of thunder to the, to, the, to the truth of the gospel of Christ. He is clinging to it. I hope that gives you young moms some encouragement, young moms with little boys that are destructo boys too, that they can grow up and be destructo boys for Jesus or something like that. They can, they, they can be strong, that same sort of strong thing for Jesus. I told Josh recently because all his life he wanted to be in the military, and he has this protective gene that won't quit, this, this sort of saving gene, saving people, and he thought he'd use it jumping out of planes to go save people. And I said, Josh, God planted that in you. He created you to be that way. He'll use it. Even if it's just protecting your own family, he'll use it. And John has that same sort of cling to the truth, protect the truth mentality. And he didn't budge. And ladies, we must not budge on the truth either. I worry about the modern church sometimes because we know almost nothing about church history. We're lucky if our understanding of church history goes further back than our churches, our, our church, Brookside Church or whatever church you attend, history. Some of us tend to see things like as creeds as, as boring and kind of just wrote things that don't have much meaning. But there are stories, there are important stories behind those creeds. And they were written to right the church's theological ship when it was starting to veer off course, when it was starting to veer from what was taught from the beginning, what we knew to be true. Who's doing that for the church today? There's, there's no Barnfeld, Barfeld confession. There's no writing of the Apostles' Creed today. Who needs to hold tenaciously to the truth? We do, as believers. We need to hold tenaciously to the truth. How do we do that? Well, first we do that by knowing God's word. I'm kind of preaching to the choir on that one. You guys are in Bible study and learning God's word, but we also need to learn about the history of the church, particularly the creeds. I read this book when I took our church history class. I was teaching Bible study at the same time and reading 500-page uh, commentaries, and I read every word of this book. I could not put it down. Now, admittedly, I do love history. This was a worship experience for me, reading about the history of the church. Uh, and it, I cried and I laughed. It was better than cats. Um, it, it really, honestly, I, it was an amazing experience for me. Learn about church history. Read a book. Take an institute class if you're from Brookside. Take the church history class. Take the doctrine class. Take any institute class, and it will uh, grow you in your faith. This is what Dr. Burge says about the church. 
He says, John is confident that he can enter this situation successfully when he visits because he is prepared. He knows God is with him and that God's desire for the church. You know what? I don't think this is... This is okay, yeah, this is the one I want. Uh, that God is with him and that God's desire is for the truth to win and for his people to walk in its freedom and joy. God wants his church, the Johannine churches and our churches, to grow in love and truth. If all parties, John and Diotrephes alike, pastors and lay leaders alike, fail to stand for the truth and to act in sincere, courageous love, the vigor of the church will be compromised. I'll go further. I will say that if we fail to stand for the, church in or for the truth and love, the church is lost. The church is lost. And ladies, it's up for, to us to stand for the truth in our churches and in our homes because the truth is this world is a scary place. But the truth also is it's not our home. This world is not our home. And aren't you glad of that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your truth. May we cling to it and proclaim it in love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.